Artificial intelligence and behavioral biometrics in 2018 will play greater roles in fooling attackers and authenticating users and sessions. At least that's the way cybersecurity attorney Chris Pearson, founder and CEO of Binary Sun Cyber Risk Advisors, and formerly the CISO at ViewPost and chief privacy officer at the Royal Bank of Scotland sees it. Have we actually reached a tipping point though? Are most companies still struggling to make meaningful investments in AI and behavioral biometrics? Here, Chris Pearson explains. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. So Chris, let's first talk about why you say that 2018 is the year for AI or artificial intelligence. How will artificial intelligence be used more effectively against attackers this year than it has in the past? Great to be with you, uh, Tracy, uh, here today and all the, all the listeners for ISMG. Uh, look, AI has been something that has been percolating behind the scenes for a few years now. We saw a rapid rise in investments in end of 2015 into 2016 and a lot of investments in 2017. Some of these items were and these investments were more in terms of uh, product ideas, product engineering ideas uh, that were less born in reality, less played out. And so we saw a lot of market consolidation happen this past year. But the bottom line is, is that in 2016, everyone saw a shift away from signature based malware detection capabilities to so the traditional blacklist. Um, Many companies, larger ones especially, had already introduced whitelisting into their production environments and, and some a little beyond that. But really what was needed was the ticking and tying of different things that were seen within the environment, different user behaviors, different user interactions, different processes on the computers that were being called and referenced together. And that was needed to gain greater defense and greater ability to defend the corporate and production networks from attackers. The fact of the matter is, is that the number of attacks, the increasing nature of the attacks and sophistication of these attacks, as well as the ability to, for attackers really to hide their trails within the environment, jumping on the backs of encryption and encrypted networks within the environments and, and then external, uh, that we've had to look at as defenders, we've had to look at how computers are reacting, how servers are reacting, what responses are bringing made and done. And that has to be done in an automated fashion. It's simply too time consuming to be done by an individual security operations uh, operator or an analyst or a cybersecurity engineer. AI plays a role in doing that in our organizations in a way that complements blacklisting, the AV signatures and other signatures, as well as whitelisting listing that might be done in the production environment and allows us to spot those signs and symptoms that something is amiss much sooner, much more rapid. Chris, we often tie artificial intelligence and machine learning together. Do you see these two splitting more in 2018, or do you see them continuing to, to work collaboratively? I think there's a lot of different misnomers about AI, machine learning, deep learning. And so I think that artificial intelligence is, is something that is more of a larger topic, a larger umbrella. Uh, machine learning is, is a little bit beyond that, where the machine actually begins to analyze and assess and take action without human intervention. And then deep learning, this is where, uh, we're, we're definitely not there yet, but this is where things get even more interesting. So being able to spot attacks, defend against attacks, change, and almost as if like a polymorphic viruses used to change and react to user responses. Uh, this is where 
our internal defense mechanisms are responding and reacting to the different stimuli that is thrown at it. I think that, uh, you know, for those people that are tried and true on the specific nomenclature, they'll say very clearly that we're in the AI area. Uh, some companies are exploring different things in machine learning, and, and what we don't know is that we've gotten there yet. And, and most certainly, we're not uh, deep into deep learning phases. N no matter what umbrella or term we use, what's important is, is that no longer are we the defenders solely focused on manual responses to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of automated threats that are coming towards the environment, towards our users. We've moved away from that and we are deploying automated defenses. Now, I do want to be careful here is that this is not just in 2018, it's not just AI for the defenders in terms of really taking a handhold on our security operations centers. This is AI for attackers too. What better way to go ahead and create pre-programmed machine learning types of responses to those different defense stimuli that we see at the corporations? So if you know what firewall they're using, if you know who their web proxy is, if you know who's scanning their, um, which of course a lot of these records are public, I know who's scanning their their uh, mail through the MX records. If you know, uh, you know what type of WAS they are using or denial of service attack prevention they're using, you can very easily create a learning attack scenario uh, and use it on the attack side. So this is going to play a double hat in terms of 2018. So let's just elaborate there a little bit. So do you see on both sides, do you see attackers using AI to attack organizations as well as organizations using AI to attack back at hackers or potential hackers? I do. I think two things. Uh, number one, uh, defenders are going to have to, if they haven't already, uh, they're going to have to include AI machine learning defenses within their environment. Uh, static signature-based technologies have not been sufficient for a long time. There are many choices out there. They'll have to choose wisely as to what they need, how they need it, and how it's going to work with their current uh, infrastructure uh, that they have. Secondarily, on the attack side, I think it's only natural that the attackers use AI to attack organizations in a smarter manner. This is almost like an arms race in terms of uh, police forces with folks moving from uh, revolvers to semi-automatic pistols to semi-automatic uh, long guns to automatic long guns. This is a weaponization in this space a little bit where we have attackers and defenders trying to one-up one another. I think it's only natural that attackers try to use, try to explore the use of AI in terms of dedicated attacks towards a specific target. Okay, got it. And that makes sense, Chris. So let's go back to something that you touched on briefly earlier as it relates specifically to artificial intelligence, and that is companies investing in artificial intelligence. So how realistic would you say it is, Chris, for companies across the board to make adequate investments in AI? Do you see bigger budgets for AI investments in some industries or sectors versus others? You know, I think that AI as a defense mechanism, or I should say, different technological controls that incorporate AI as a defense mechanism to protect the company you know, should not necessarily be called out individually or separately or a separate budget for them. What really needs to happen is that companies need to examine their current defense strategy, the current controls they have, place them against the risks that they see affecting them, affecting their sector, 
affecting their industry and respond accordingly. So to be clear, as it relates to AI and controls, many sectors such as the financial sector, healthcare sector, government sectors, are seeing a rapid increase and have seen a rapid increase in terms of attacks and the sophistication of the attacks. This is an area where AI-based controls, behavioral-based controls, can help and can assist. And so CISOs, along with their CFO, should look at improving budgets, increasing budgets, allowing for new technologies to come in, but once again, as a part of a larger control framework and structure. Let's talk a little bit about behavioral biometrics in in some of the different industries um, and how it's being used. I I don't think that investments are probably equally distributed in behavioral biometrics across all industries. But if we focus on financial services for a moment, Chris, there's been a lot of discussion surrounding the use of behavioral biometrics and the role that behavioral biometrics can play in shoring up security for faster or real-time payments. In the United Kingdom, for instance, where faster payments were launched in May of 2000, the use of behavioral biometrics um, over the course of the last 10 years has really made great strides toward reducing fraud. What lessons would you say U.S. organizations, especially where faster or real-time payments are concerned in the financial services sector, what would you say that they could learn from the U.K.'s example here? Yeah, that's a great question, Tracy. I mean, as it relates to advances in banking, and new technologies. Europe, the UK have really been further ahead of the US, both in the deployment of uh, EMV, pure, ch- really true chip and pin. I mean, we're mostly at the US on chip and sign and a large uh, majority of the retailers as opposed to chip and pin. The UK has been there for, I mean, gosh, for well over a decade. So I think that they are much, uh, UK and in Europe has been much more advanced in this topic of electronic uh, financial transactions in the US. So taking a look at the fraud data, paying attention to what has worked, what hasn't worked there is going to be very illustrative for the United States in terms of what we should be doing. As, as you point out, in terms of faster payments, Europe, UK, they've been there. We should take a staunch look at what role behavioral analytics has played, behavioral biometrics has played in terms of authenticating the end transaction. I think there's a lot of data here that shows that this is something that we should pay attention to. And as you know, I mean, with faster payments, it really is focused on speed of the payment and the fact that it cannot be rescinded. It can't be pulled back. Once a payment has gone, it is gone. That's something that differentiates the current ACH system and even to some extent wires uh, these days. So uh, faster payments in the U.S. is definitely going to need for vast troves of data to be collected behind the scenes, behavioral biometrics data, I believe, uh, in addition to uh, two-factor and other forms of authentication. But this is what is going to allow for big data analysis on the data sets, on the devices, on the logins, on the instances. Some of this stuff, I mean, of course, can be attacked and spoofed and changed and modified, but you're really creating a high wall for the adversary to jump over with uh, behavioral biometrics behind the scenes. Uh, Someone may get a new phone. They may get a new laptop. They may go ahead and move. But once again, all these things, especially in the financial services industry, all these things are going to be known because of the closeness between the bank or the financial institution and the customer. You, You don't move from one location in New York to another location in California without changing your bank address because you don't want your bills or your or your checks or whatever it is 
to be delivered to the wrong location or your credit cards to be flagged for fraud while you make the trip or when you first get settled. So the treasure trove of information that's behind the scenes, especially at financial institutions, is just so voluminous here that uh, the analytics here uh, for behavioral biometrics is really in a nice place for use and to go ahead and make meaningful reductions in fraud. But what about other industries or sectors? Can they also learn the role that behavioral biometrics and then, you know, I guess a more fine-tuned use of big data analytics could be used to help shore up their security? Can they learn lessons from the UK as well? Absolutely. I mean, when you take a look at behavioral biometrics, when you take a look at the analytics behind the scene, uh, it doesn't have to be this one or zero in terms of, oops, we either caught them on the front end or we didn't catch them on the front end. Every single thing that happens that occurs is a different point in time through the interaction of the customer, either a consumer or business, and whatever product or service is being offered. Okay, so we know that it's applicable, but let's use the healthcare industry as an example. Do you see healthcare really, though, making the investments there, spending the money that it would take to adequately use behavioral biometrics? <laughs> so every single sector is a little bit different, but the bottom line is I think they're going to have to. Uh, I think healthcare, as, as an example, is going to have to spend the money here. And I'll tell you why. Healthcare is continually being hit with ransomware and other attacks. And the amount of patient data that flows out has been uh, increasing in years since the High Tech Act was uh, passed and notice had to be uh, given and provided to affected uh, patients. Uh, number two, the healthcare industry is very, very, you know, different in terms of what they need to pay attention to. They need to pay attention to patient care. And so sometimes it means that cybersecurity takes a back seat. They're concerned about life and death decisions, not as much so the ones and zeros in many cases. So I think in that industry, once again, it calls for the ability behind the scenes to do some more, you know, artificial intelligence-based, behavioral-based, analytics-based uh, decision-making to better protect and better uh, safeguard the patient data. And third, quite honestly, we haven't seen any hospitals or major healthcare providers step up and say, look, we are training everyone in our workforce from the doctors and the nurses to the you know, blood techs, the radiologist, everyone is gonna be trained in cybersecurity, cybersecurity hygiene at a heightened level because patient data is, is critical to us. We are further bolstering the cybersecurity workforce. I haven't seen that happen. I haven't seen the budgets increase at such a substantial level. So given the fact that you're not going to have more cybersecurity technicians, more cybersecurity engineers and folks in the SOC actually pay attention to the cybersecurity flags, I think you're going to have to use technology to automate the behind the scenes of this and put the proper flags and warnings up to the team that you currently have to go ahead and address them. Yeah, I would agree with that, Chris. And I think it'll be interesting to watch, right? Because healthcare um, <laughs> it has a lot of issues that need to be addressed and, and the industry, you know, obviously kind of lags when it comes to the investments that financial services has made. So we'll have this call again, maybe um, in about 10 months and, and see how things have changed and investments have increased. And with that, Chris, I'd like to thank you for your time. As always, this has been very informative. <laughs> Thanks, Tracy. Appreciate it. Again, we've just heard from cybersecurity attorney Chris Pearson, who also is the founder and CEO of Binary Sun Cyber Risk Advisors. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten. Thank you for listening.